Stay hungry, stay foolish. For centuries, people have searched for ways to access inspiration and streamline content creation. Whether praying to the muses or shutting themselves into dark rooms, authors use trial and error to find the methods that will work for them. What if we could apply cognitive science principles to determine our own perfect methods for creativity and productivity? We welcome author of Writing to be Understood, Subscription Marketing, The Workplace Writer's Process, and the focus of today's episode, The Writer's Process, Getting Your Brain in Gear. Anne Janzer, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Aiden. I'm happy to be here. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I got so much out of the book. I really, really enjoyed it. And very, very timely for me as I'm in the midst of it myself. But what I loved about it, Anne, and I'd love if we got straight into this, because this is the unique approach you took with this as a writer yourself, is that you married your own scar tissue of being a writer and a creator of content with your love of cognitive sciences and neuroscience. And you've brought those two worlds together brilliantly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a very personal journey, this book, <laughs> based on experience, as you said, you know, and, and it's reassuring, actually. You know, I talk to a lot of writers and they think, well, you know, I, I'm really weird. I do this thing. And it's really reassuring uh, to, to read the cognitive science and think, wait, no, actually, we're all working with these same sets of mental processes. And so the things that we think make us weird are actually not. They're, they're just, we've figured out how to work with our brains. So it's really helpful to, to surface this and bring it out and say, you know, this is how the process of creativity works. And that's why, you know, I get my best ideas in the shower or things like that. It's really useful. It's not that I'm just some strange person. You don't just mention these things and everybody goes, yeah, that's like me. I get my ideas in the shower. You then create it into a framework, how to bring those ideas out of ourselves, how to adduce more content from ourselves. And if we have a problem, dwell on it and let, as you call the two brains, the muse and the scribe, let the muse figure it out for you. It'd be great to get into that and, and let our audience know about how you've separated the brain into system one and system two, essentially. Okay. Yes. Great. Yes. Yeah, so system one and system two, which is, I love that you mentioned, because those are the words that Daniel Kahneman uses in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read that book or at least heard um, heard about it because it's been so influential to so many people. And he basically used this mental model that we have two different decision-making processes, and he put labels of of uh, system one and system two on them. Uh, so it occurred to me that I could do something similar with writing because just as with, you know, making decisions is very complicated. Well, writing is also a very complicated thing. So language has evolved with the human homo sapiens, right? But the written language is a relatively new development, writing and reading. Uh, so we, to, to make this happen, just make use of all sorts of different mental processes. You know, we grab different things available in our brain and put these skills together. So writing is not a single process that we do. Um, it is an accumulation of different mental systems. So I thought that this using this this different system one, system two, this dichotomy was a really useful hook for writers to understand that we have to bring different sets of systems and processes into play at different phases of the writing process. Um, but you know, because I'm not an economist, I'm a writer, I had to call it something more interesting than system one and system two. So I came up with the idea of uh, the scribe and the muse. 
And the scribe is that, uh, you know, I picture the people who used to labor away writing in the, in the uh, monasteries in the Dark Ages, keeping language, written language alive in the Western world. Um, that's hardworking, self-disciplined. The scribe is the part of you that does the planning. You know, it's really your executive functioning uh, uh, capabilities in your brain. And we get in touch with that through focused attention. Say, I'm going to work, I'm going to schedule this time, I'm going to focus and work. That is working with the mental systems that I'm going to call your scribe. And the muse is other sets of mental systems that are creative, that are associative thinking, that, that pull memories uh, out and connect to disparate ideas in your brain. Um, so these are much harder to control through focus. We get in touch with them through open attention, but essentially by making room for them to surface for those ideas to surface in our brains. Um, and this was sort of, for me, the breakthrough that, that successful writing is a balance of these two things, the disciplined and the open attention. Um, and if we build a writing process that makes room for both of these processes handing off to each other, we can be more productive and more creative and actually, you know, really have a better time writing. We can enjoy the process more if we're working with our brains instead of uh, trying to force them into something that they are not naturally inclined to do. Oftentimes when you're writing or you're doing any type of deep work, you feel guilty about daydreaming or you feel guilty when your attention wanes a little bit. But you tell us and you encourage us to say, well, that's really necessary to give the scribe a break, but also to invoke or evoke the muse. Yes, right. I mean, you can't, you can't force creativity. You can't force those associative thoughts. Um, you have to give yourself breaks. So there's some research, and I, I cite it in the book, um, that's talking about uh, this, this handoff. It's talking about something called the incubation effect, which is that when, when we're working on something and then we take a break to do something entirely different, parts of our brain remain working on that first pro problem. Um, not not writing, but if, if you're trying to come up with words or ideas, if you've got a creative problem, parts of your brain continue incubating that idea. And incubation is the writer's friend. You know, if you build this into your schedule, you will be more productive because you're actually working on your writing when you're driving home, when you're going to the gym, walking the dog. Um, parts of your brain are working at it, which is just so awesome, right? I mean, it's like, make more time in my day. Thank you. That is terrific. <laughs> And here you talk about the Zygarnik effect, and this was fascinating. Yes, yeah. So Bluma Zygarnik was a, a Lithuanian psychiatrist. And the story of where her origin for this idea is, was that she uh, was amazed by some waiter who could remember everybody's orders at a huge table. Uh, but when she came back, you know, for something she had left behind at the, at the restaurant, he couldn't remember her just like 15 minutes later. And it was like, wait, how come you could remember, you know, that I had my name and I had the veal pork chop, you know, or just that, that part. Um, but he didn't remember it once he didn't need to. So there's an interesting thing that our brain does with tasks that we somehow know are unfinished or pending. That uh, we keep a little part of our brain holding this stuff in working memory until we need it, right? Or working on this. Um, so that's the, the name of the Zygarnik effect, which is that if we think of something as being unfinished or a, pr a problem that we have to resolve, we don't let it go. Now, this can be, you know, super annoying if we're trying to go on with our lives and we have some unfinished problem that, you know, is 
I know I have to deal with something I don't want to deal with, then that's really annoying. But as a writer, as a writer, the Zygarnik effect can also be really wonderful because you can use it intentionally. Like if I'm stuck on a, I want to do a blog post and I just don't have a good hook. I can't figure out, or I can't figure out a good analogy to use for something, for example. I will pose that to myself. I have this unfinished problem of coming up with an analogy. And I will remind myself that I have this problem. And then I'll go off and and go to the gym or I'll do something entirely different where my attention is not working on this problem and it's not even really absorbed too much in anything. Um, And I might revisit it as I'm, you know, on that, on the workout equipment, I think, oh, I wonder about that metaphor and then let it go again. But by doing that, I am, I'm like adding fuel to that part of my brain that is processing this problem. And as often as not, I will get a really good idea at that point, Uh, like sort of granted to me from somewhere beyond, which is from my, from my brain, right? This is the, the magical bit of, uh, of writing. Um, the, the idea will come to me. And if it doesn't come to me right then, the next time I sit to write, suddenly there's going to be more fodder. I'll have other, you know, there's this and there's that. The things will appear that, that weren't there before. And I think that's the Zygarnik effect in action. And it's just this cool little trick that we can do to solve writing issues or writing problems that we are having, um, or actually any other kind of problem as well, to take use of, make use of what our brains do naturally. And you did say this at the start of Zygarnik effect when we were talking about Zygarnik effect, that it can be actually quite destructive. It's an unfinished business or unresolved problems in our lives. And I took that from it as well. I was like, that. it's awesome if you actually use it for good. It's like it's like the force in Star Wars. Right. Or evil. And if you don't, if you don't deal with an issue or the other thing I saw was when people procrastinate that that unfinished business is almost like using up fuel and mental bandwidth and space for something else and it's like that saying some doors don't open until other doors close you need to actually close some things off and just go okay I'm finished with that I'm never going to do it move on or or I got to finish this thing because it's bugging the heck out of me and therefore liberate my my cognitive availability to do something else Yes, and there was some research, and I, I think it may be by Roy Baumas, Meister, and um, someone Mazacampo. So, so, so there is some research, and let's talk about what happens when you're suffering from that effect. Um, what they have found is that you can alleviate it by by dealing with your problem by sitting down and making a plan. You can say, okay, I have this thing I'm going to have to do. It's really annoying, so I'm going to spend 10 minutes, and I'm going to make a plan of how I'm going to address it. And then I'll put that to the side. And that is enough to signal to your brain completion. And you can let go of it for a bit. So that's a, that's if, if you are finding you're trying to write, but you're being consumed by something annoying that you have to deal with or something that you really don't want to confront. Uh, I'm not saying you should put it off, but if, if you have, you just can't handle it right now, you can sit and make a plan. Okay. Tomorrow I'm going to spend an hour doing this. And I'm going to call this person. I'm going to do, you know, call the lawyer, whatever it is that's giving you trouble. You make that plan. And then your brain says, okay, that's no longer an unfinished project because now there's a plan by it. I can put it as for a bit. So that was a nice little thing that popped up in the research too. Again, very useful because when we're trying to do something, we need our full attention on it. And sometimes uh, it is distracted by other things going on in our lives. And that leads me nicely to this one, which which is so essential, going back to the scribe. And in a way, I saw the scribe as the kind of disciplined one 
you know, the manager and the maybe the muse is the leader going off and going, we should be over here. We should be building over here. You know, there's there's gold over in these hills. And the scribe's kind of going, no, let's just focus on what we're doing here. And that's, the, that's for, for so many people, I mean, you're a writer and so many people would say to me with do, both doing the show and because I do it from, it's not my job, I do it as a passion and I write in the same way. And they go, where do you get the time from? And it's a yeah. couple of things. One of them is prioritizing time. So I don't watch some TV that maybe others might watch. I don't give myself that time. I, I, I focus on this. And the other thing is I have worked massively on attention and this is the realm of the scribe. And I talk to writers about the issues that get in the way of their getting work done. And people tend to tip, you know, it's sometimes you can almost sense it's like, hey, this person's all muse and almost no scribe. This is a person with 10 unfinished books. <laughs> Right, and, and we all know people like this. They start about a million things and nothing gets finished. Um, so they give free reign to the muse, to the muse, and they, they their scribe is like totally checked out. And then you have, you know, the, the scribe, the person who has spreadsheets and this and that, but they sit down to work and they're just it's it's like pulling teeth, you know. And and I, we've all experienced this. Like I gotta write this thing now. I don't really wanna, and it's just. It's like pulling teeth. It's hard. Um, it's onerous. Um, so working harder isn't going to make you necessarily more productive or successful as a writer. It's it, this is, you know, I have this real work discipline thing I was brought up with, but it's not actually the secret. Yes, it's a whole lot of hard work, but you have to make room for the creative. Um, so just as with leaders, you know, you need the visionary and you need the execution. You need them both. And they need to be in balance with each other uh, as a writer. And your job is to almost um, mediate between <laughs> your scribe and your muse. You mediate between the discipline, our objectives. Um, yeah, I have this series of blog posts I want to do, and I want to, uh, I want it to, you know, communicate or achieve this business objective. And yet. Um, I have to be creative in thinking about how to present it. I have to be creative in thinking about the reader's situation. If I bring creativity to it, it's going to be so much better than if I just blast out a whole bunch of stuff about my business and what I'm doing. So your job as a writer is to try to bring both parties to the table and make that work. And you talk, Anne, about finding flow and, and the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I said it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was like, please be able to say it. Um, but his work on flow, and it's so essential. And I mean, for any endeavor, really, when you're in this state of flow, you get so much done. But it'd be great to share that with our audience. Right. So uh, this is, and thank you for saying his name. So I'm just going to skip right there. <laughs> <laughs> I spent time practicing before I recorded the audiobook of this book. I spent time practicing that one and practice. And I'm sure the listeners can still hear this before I do this gasp. Oh, I hope I'm right. Um, but I love the book, uh, the flow and the science of optimum experience. I think I've mangled the subtitle. Um, but he talks about that state when you're, when you're in flow, when you lose track of time, when you're absorbed in the work. Um, this is, you know, this is what we all want in our lives. This is what we envision writing should be. It should be, we're just writing and we're absorbed and it's wonderful. Um, no one can get it all the time, but we can certainly set up the situation, uh, that where it can happen more often. Um, and so he, he talks about the different things that have to be present 
for flow and, and, and flow, you know, another word for, you know, programmers talk about being in the zone. It's, it's when you're just wrapped up in your work and you look up and you think, whoa, where'd the time go? You know, right. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's kind of a big part of it. Um, in, in a good way, you know, you've just been absorbed in what you're doing. Uh, so he has these sets of, of attributes and he says, you know, one of them is the work has to be challenging enough. You have to have goals for it and be able to uh, get feedback that you're, that the work is meeting those goals. Uh, you have to completely focus on the action and not have distractions. And then here's my, my favorite too, is that he suggests that absence of fear of failure is an attribute of flow. So as you're working, you're not worried about failing and you are at, at lack of self-consciousness. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the work. And when that happens, you do lose track of time passing and you get an inherent sense of enjoyment from the work. There's pleasure in doing something that is challenging, reward, you know, gives you feedback and, and, you know, generally I think has a purpose. There's, there's great joy in that. That adds a lot of meaning to our lives. So the more flow we can add to our lives, I think the, the happier we all are. And you share how to create the optimum environment for flow to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think what we have to do as writers is, Get rid of anything that is going to impede from this, that's going to get interfere with flow. Um, for example, when we try to multitask, we are, you know, by definition, removing the possibility of flow. When we are distracted, we are removing the possibility of flow. So if you have other browser tabs open and it's, oh, wait, I got an email notification, and that's just not going to work. You know, you, you can't be in flow while you're letting yourself, while you're being open to distraction. Um, and, and another one is that when it comes to the actual drafting process and, and it, you know, writing is much more than the drafting. Um, we should get to that. <laughs> but when it comes to the drafting process, when you're getting the words out on paper, if you are revising at the same time and editing and judging, saying, oh, that's not a good, I need a better adjective there. And look at the sentence structure, right? If you're doing that while you're drafting, you uh, are removing flow from the process. You can't be in a state of flow because you are judging, you are self-conscious, you are worried about failure. Um, so that's why there's this, writers have this whole, you know, should I revise as I draft or not? And people have very different personal on that. But from a purely cognitive science perspective, my advice is not to revise as you draft. Because you eliminate the sense of flow, and I, I feel like in doing that, you also impede creativity, the associative thinking, the, the, the risk-taking thinking, because it's getting stamped out all the time in the revision. Yeah, and that, that's actually a huge thing I took from the book, because I do that. I, I tend to write and then, you know, just go, oh, that's a better word, or, you know, look at the grammar, or the punctuation right. as I go, and... It just, it's like, it's like trying to drive and in really bad traffic, you're stopping and you're starting instead of just hitting the motorway and just with no traffic ahead of, ahead of you and you just go for it. It's something I'm definitely going to do from now on. Just write it and then come back to it. As you say, sometimes when you draft, like you think you're finished and then you, you're going, you tell us, you, you give us a wake up call in the book and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's <laughs> only the very, very start. I'd love to come back to what you talked about, which was the self-criticism both the inner critic, but also the fear, the psychological safety of the environment we work in is really, really important. And you tell us really simple tips like turning off our Wi-Fi, 
and even using free writing tools like you mentioned 750words.com, for example. If you set up a writing environment, and, and again, I'm not talking about revision, not talking about planning, I'm talking about the drafting phase. Um, if you set up that environment as something that is different, uh, maybe you use, and I know a lot of writers, I do, I use a different, I use a little laptop that has almost nothing else on it for the drafting phase. It's, it's connected to the internet because I want to save stuff up in the cloud and access it, right? But, but I'm not doing other stuff on it. All I do on that basically is that sort of flow writing. That's what happens there. Um, or, you know, close your door, just signal to yourself that you're in a different kind of, of space and time when you want to be drafting and you want to invite the possibility of a state of flow and that kind of, uh, you know, ideas moving, the creativity, the associative thinking. Um, I find it really useful to uh, just uh, find a different place. I've talked to people who work in the workplace and often they'll say, you know, I write first drafts of everything at home on Sunday nights or I, I you know, reserve a conference room and go in there and <laughs> put down the blinds and I work there. Um, so it's really tough for writers in the workplace to find this because the modern workplace is a place of interruptions. It is a place of constant distraction um, and being on call all the time. Uh, so, you know, if you're trying to do this for your job and you happen to be working in an office, your challenge is particularly acute to, to find, to schedule, to make room for writing that gives you a chance to, to be in a state of flow and to, to let your ideas flow out. That's the environment. But then you talk about us, so our own self-discipline and avoiding procrastination, for example. Could you share some of your your thoughts on that? Yes. So, you know, we are often our own worst enemies. I mean, I work in a home office and I can still interrupt myself about a million times a day, right? Picking up the phone or he's like, oh, I wonder what's happening here. What's next on the Netflix queue? You know, whatever that might be. So um, obviously we need to find ways to uh, tell ourselves as well. Uh, and one way to do that is to to set a timer and to work to a timer. And so whenever an idea pops up, this is almost like a meditative practice, right? Whenever an idea pops up, you say, I'll get to it afterwards when the timer is done. You know, maybe I'll write it down. If it was some great idea that I needed to think of, I'll write it down and then I will continue going on my, on my, on my focused work. Um, that also, you know, that signals to your brain that this is important, uh, that you are not going to give up easily. I feel like the more you do this, you know, I, I suggest to people that if they really want to write uh, a lot, they want to write a book, if they want to really have writing as a major part of their thought leadership platform, that they make a practice of doing something every day. Maybe it's 10 minutes or 15 minutes, or maybe it's 500 words of just drafting something. They don't even know what a day, even if they don't use it, because they are signaling to their brain that this is not something that they're giving up on. This is something they're going to return to tomorrow. They're going to need more ideas tomorrow. So they're signaling the brain to be on the lookout for tomorrow's writing session. Um, they're, they're proving to themselves and to all of the inner bits in their brain that, that this writing is something that they take seriously. And so everyone had better be ready to show up for it. Deadlines and constraints can be really, really helpful. And you talk about some research where students could select their deadlines across a certain certain period of time. Yes, I I love this study. It's by uh, Dan Ariely, he, who wrote Predictably Irrational and uh, an, another recent book. And he's a great uh, writer and cognitive scientist. So he did a uh, a study where he gave his classes in a, a class at MIT um, three a couple options for how they wanted to deal with their papers. They could either 
have a traditional, you know, deadline spaced out one paper, two paper, you know, after third of the way through another third of the way through and then the final paper. Um, or they could create their own deadlines or have no deadlines. Um, and the research showed that, so, you know, no, no big surprise here. We do better work with uh, deadlines um, because we do tend to, you know, students, <laughs> students like all of us tend to procrastinate. And some of those students realized about that about themselves and they set themselves well-spaced deadlines. Um, and their papers were better than those who did not give themselves deadlines. So I think there's a, there's a, a few things that going on there. One is that we, we need deadlines to motivate us. Um, and, uh, I, I think that as a, as a writer, we need to give ourselves deadlines. If we don't have an inherent external deadline, we need to give ourselves one. Um, because it gets us off of that, um, the procrastination, the, the thing about writing a paper, uh, writing a book, you know, that's a, that's a long-term project, right? There's always going to be something more urgent that needs to slide in ahead of that book, but the book won't get done unless you're working on it a little bit over a long, you know, a day over a long period of time. You can't just do it in a weekend. Well, some people might, but most of us, uh, <laughs> most of us, it probably won't be a great book. Maybe, I don't know. So the deadline and lots of interim deadlines and checkpoints help us. Uh, they, it's, that's our, that's our scribe, you know, showing up in the process and making sure things are moving along, um, and, and working on it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, deadlines are our friends. And if you don't have one, make it up. One of the things I don't know whether you use it, but accountability partners where somebody holds you to account for delivering a chapter at a certain date, et cetera. I, I use that and I find it unbelievably helpful. Yeah, I, I think a lot of writers really, uh, really like that. I think um, it's it's a, a valuable way to give some structure to your process. And I think you know the, the psychologists talk about people having different um, uh, personality attributes, and one of them is conscientiousness. Um, my problem is is too much accountability. I mean, I will set my own deadline, and then I'll start beating myself up if I'm not making it. It's like, well, okay, I need to like, I need to have the other partner going, relax, chill, it's okay. <laughs> so we're all a little different in what we need, but the accountability partner is a way of of uh, putting structure around those those deadlines and motivating yourself to keep things moving along. And I think they're a great idea, especially if you're finding yourself struggling to, you know, you, you set a plan, but you're not making progress or, or you know that you made up your deadline and you need something more real. That, that's not something you just made up, but you need something that someone else is holding you to. That makes it a real deadline. Part two of the book is all about the process. And you talk about seven steps of your writing recipe. And this is extremely helpful because Many of us, if people are writing, you know, some people are just good at writing in a corporate environment and they may be asked to write for LinkedIn or whatever it may be, or the, the company blog, but they just do it and they don't have a process to do it. And I found this seven step process really helpful. Yeah. You know, I think that when people struggle with writing, it's because they think of it as a monolithic task. Well, okay, I need to write a blog. I'm going to sit down and write a blog and then I'll get up and I'll be done, you know, and you know, sometimes it works like that. But remember, we talked about writing, pulling on all of these different mental processes. Um, and so it's, I think that the most practical advice I can give to any writer, no matter whether you're writing a book, a blog post, a thesis, anything, is to split up the writing into multiple phases. And so in the book, I share what my phases are. It's I start with research. Um, I leave time for incubation. I outline 
And then I do the drafting and it's big, messy, ugly draft. And that's okay because I know that there's a revision phase coming up after and I can clean up everything. I can leave notes to myself saying, this is crap, you know, (laughs) but I'm going to fix it or look up this research or something and I'm going to get back to it. And then to leave the time for revision, for careful revision and for proofreading. Well, let's say you want to, you want to publish an article on LinkedIn. You can say, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and I have to sit down and write this article and I'm feeling rotten because I'm not coming up with great ideas and, you know, I'll just go to lunch. But if you say, okay, (laughs) maybe that's what I would say. I'll just go to lunch. Um, If you want to, another way to approach is to say, okay, next week I'm going to publish this. So today I am going to just uh, open up a file and just write 500 words of ideas about what this article might be. I don't know yet what it is. I have a, I have a glimmer of a topic and I'm just going to write about it. I'm going to think from the reader's perspective. I'm going to ask myself questions as if I were the reader and just write that stuff. And then tomorrow I'm going to look at what I did and I'm going to come up with an outline and a title for this article. And then the next day I'll just take that outline and fill it out and draft it. And then maybe it's the weekend. Then you'll go off and have a weekend and you'll come back and you'll look at it and you'll, now you'll revise it and clean it up and put tight headings and come in with a picture and add links and really make it look good. And you're still not going to publish it. You're going to wait till the next day and then you're going to look at it. Uh, you might read it out loud. You'll catch all the little glitches and blips that you left in there and then you'll publish it. This is a much less painful way. And it, you may say, Anne, you know, you just, it's like five days instead of one, one day, but it might be the same amount of time. It might be still just like, an hour of work or an hour and a half of work or two hours, whatever it takes you. Um, but it's spread out and I'm using different mental processes on each day so I can fit them in different ways. I mean, the, the, the day I do the drafting is probably, you know, I need to find a, a little slice of time that I'm really uninterrupted. Um, the day I do the revision, I just need to be someplace where I can kind of focus on it and bring my scribe and look for grammar problems and things like that. Um, but it's just much easier to fit it into my schedule and into my life. And because I leave spaces between if good idea comes to me partway through, hey, you know, this would be a great metaphor or someone just made this comment. And I think that would be a really interesting angle to add. The article will be so much better if you give yourself time and separate out all of those pieces of the process. People often ask, where do you get your ideas from? And I certainly believe you have to be reading. You you need quality inputs in order to have your outputs, whether they're quality or not, but but you need inputs. And by watching the same shows on TV or doing the same things everybody else does, you're not going to have different outputs that are going to be appealing and interesting to people. You need quality inputs. The other thing, though, though, that's important to think about this is, so the very first day of any project uh, is, you know, I, I believe that procrastinate all you want as long as as soon as you know you have a project, no matter when it's due, you start doing some research. And whether that's, like you said, reading different things about that or even writing out what you know and asking as many questions that you're curious about. Because now you will not only seek out quality inputs, but you will be alert to those things that come out of the blue. The comment that somebody says, uh, the, the, the thing that you read, the app, the new app that you learn about that's in this area that you would have looked right past, except that you'd spent an hour thinking about this topic the day before. And you're like, oh, and there's an interesting application that AI hadn't thought about, you know, or something like that, right? So you also have to prime yourself to be receptive to all of those inputs. And so then you're not procrastinating, you're gathering, you're gathering input, you're gathering data. 
you do that little research mm-hmm. and then give yourself time to let things simmer um, and talk to people and, you know, bounce ideas off of them and all of that. You mentioned the red car effect in, in the book. So the almost like the law of attraction where you where you're focusing yeah. on something and then you'll see it everywhere and your ideas connect and you see different connections in everything you do because you're focused on it. And I, I find that's remarkable when you're writing is actually, like you say, you may overhear somebody in a coffee shop and you go, oh, that's an awesome analogy for what I was looking for. But but you have to be tuned into it. Yes, you do. You have to be tuned in. So, I mean, if you want to write a book, start researching it right now, even if you don't know what the book is, <laughs> even if you don't know exactly how it's going to work. Don't wait till you have the book proposal. Start researching because then you you invoke that red car effect. You know, you will start hearing things, seeing things, having conversations that relate to this, to your topic. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, it's it's just a lot of fun to do is that all of a sudden everything seems relevant to this thing that you're you're focused on. It's not all fun because I'm going to talk about this part now. So, so revision, the revised phase that you talk about in the book, this this is the difficult one. And like you mentioned, many people with even their LinkedIn blog post or whatever it may be, they often skip this phase and they just go, I just need to ship it. I need to get it done. I need it out the door. And you talk about four phases that we should go through in revision. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about this because revision is... You know, if you have faith in this, I'm going to draft now and revise later, then you really have to revise, right? But you don't want to spend more time on it and more mental energy than you need to, right? So the trick is finding, again, that right level. Um, So I think the main thing from revision is to stop and look at the, you know, work from the top down or the outside in, right? So the very first thing you need to look through is... uh, for this blog post or this book, whatever it may be, who's the audience? What's the objective for this? Uh, what do I want them to come away? How are they approaching it? And how do I want them to leave it? Right. And so given that, does this thing, how does this thing that I've written meet those objectives? Is there something here that's extraneous to it? Is it missing something structurally? Does the thing make sense? Um, because you want to do this first because you know, if you go in and start polishing words and then, and then you realize that you have to cut that section, you're, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be heartbroken because you polished that <laughs> section, right? You're going to be like, oh no. Uh, so you'll be very sad or you'll be like, no, this section's so great. I'm leaving it in. And you leave in something that doesn't serve the reader. It doesn't serve the final piece. And, you know, we've all read books like that too, where it's like, I wonder why this is in here. <laughs> you know? I'm, It's self-indulgent writing and it's to avoid the temptation of that and the pain of, of working really hard. Don't polish until you're happy with the structure. So then when you're happy with the structure, then read it through start to finish. Does it make sense in the flow? Is something out of order? Are, are, are there sentences where someone's going to get stuck and have to like rewind back and figure out what you're meaning? Are you taking, you know, things for granted? So, so then read through for flow. And then you can do the grammar word choice. Oh, look, I use this sentence construct. You know, then you can decide how much you want to polish. You got to make sure it's grammatically correct and, and spelling is correct. But you can then say, you know, I tend to use these boring words and I'm going to put in some more interesting words or I'm going to change all my sentences, use the same construction and I'm not going to do that. You can, you can then get as far as you want into publishing. So now, and one way to do this is just simply just read it out loud. You can read it out loud and you will catch. 95% of stuff when you do that. Yeah. And, and in this reading out loud, I thought it was fascinating that 
we wouldn't think of this cultural biases, our thinking voice is not our writing voice, for example. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I when I look at my writing, I can see, wow, my thought processes are really, uh, you know, work like this. I say, this is that. I mean, nearly everything I write, think when I'm writing in a state of flow comes out like that. And then I that's way boring to read. So then I have to go back and make it more interesting. Yeah. Um, what you learn if you do this and pay attention to patterns and, and things like that, you learn things about how you think and you learn things about what are the common sort of mannerisms that you have in your thought that you need to maybe edit, tone down or edit out in your written work. Speaking, I'll say things like maybe or perhaps. And in writing, those are, in our conversation, it sounds fine. It's polite. And in writing, it just sounds wussy. You know? So you have to take those out. I found that really, really interesting because if you read any of the Eastern philosophies, they will talk about essentially self-awareness or metacognition is the more technical term for it. This is what you've really done with this book is you've kind of used a metacognition version of a writer. So watch yourself spot what you do, and then by first being aware of it, then you can master it. That's exactly right. I mean, that's really what it all comes down to, is being aware of what works for you, being aware of what you're, you know, where you run into trouble, and, and creating a process so that you set yourself up for success more more than not. When you pay attention to, you'll you'll find those things, what those things are that you struggle with. You'll find if you're trying to write and it's really painful, well, maybe you haven't done the work first to research and think about it. Maybe you haven't given yourself any incubation. You know, maybe you can figure out what it is that you're doing to make things not work and, and how to set yourself up so that things just work smoothly and your writing is more productive. And, and you know, I really, here's the thing, I really want it to be more enjoyable because when, when things are going well, when you're writing something is coming out great, it's really fun. It's a, it's a delightful way to communicate and connect with other people. I mean, that's what writing is. It's a communication. It's a it's a bond between people, and it's really fun when it works well. I lecture, for example, in university, and I can never underemphasize the importance of writing because it teaches you how to critically think because so many people don't give themselves the opportunity to do deep work except in college, and then they leave college and they don't do it anymore. And then, you know, we're having neurological diseases in the world or failure in, in our brain cognition. And we need it more than ever at this stage in the world. Yes. You know, we, we need to, you're right, we need deep thought and we need effective communication. Um, and when it comes to deep thought, you're right, there's no there's no time in my schedule that says, and sit and think deeply about this thing, right? I mean, <laughs> our schedules get filled with stuff and tasks and very little of them are deep thought. So writing is actually a physical manifestation of deep thought. If you are writing in a way where you're writing in a state of flow, where you're asking questions and exploring through writing, and this is not writing you're necessarily going to publish, right? Um, but I do some writing every day as a way to schedule and some deep thought, some reflection. So I write to figure out, I think Joan Didion said, you know, I don't know what I think about something until I write it. Um, she probably said it more gracefully, but <laughs> that, that, that is true of me as well. I need to, you know, write my way through issues and problems. And, and each time I've written a book, I get partway through and discover that, of course, I didn't know half the things I thought I did and I have to go research more and reconstruct. I mean, that, that's the beauty of writing. It is deep thought. And then when you do it 
effectively, then you are actually connecting at that level of deep thought with other people. And that's a, a really wonderful thing and something else that we need more of in the world. I agree with you. The more you write, the more you know what you know. Funnily, I find the more you know what you don't know. <laughs> and you know, and the more content you, you discover and the better quality content you discover because, you know, you mentioned three or four books in the in, in your book that I've gone now and gone, I got to read those. And they're now on the list as well, you know. So you go down a rabbit hole and it's an enjoyable one. But coming back to the structure and the process, you talk about then uh, it's at this stage that you may then hire an editor. But I found it really, really interesting that there's different types of editor that you need to go for depending on what you need. Yeah, depending on where you are in the writing, are you you know so a developmental editor in the in the world of books anyway, a developmental editor is going to help you with that structural that first pass. Uh, does this thing hang? Does it serve the needs of the reader? Um, that uh, a line editor is going to help you with. Does this flow? Are these sentences getting messed up? Are you using you know? Is the person going to be able to read through and make sense of everything? And a copy editor will look for the little nits and grammar and spelling and punctuation and, and all of that. Um, and, you know, this is true, too, in a, in, a, in a business context, if you're writing something and you want to get feedback from someone, um, tell them what kind of feedback you're looking for. <laughs> this is going to make everybody happier. You, in terms of, you say, I, I like your feedback, right? And them, everyone. Uh, you know, when you don't do this, you, you hand your thought leadership article to someone and they come back saying, you know, I don't think the Oxford comma is the right choice. It's like, wait, that's not what I was asking, right? You end up, everybody ends up feeling resentful and annoyed, right? So if you say, I, I've written this, and I love your input on the ideas and the structure, or I love your, do you think that, that this reader would find you value or, you know, does this flow all right? Or could you get stuck anywhere reading it? You can ask someone for that kind of, you know, if you were new to this field and we're reading this from start to finish, would it make sense to you? Or, you know, I'm going to publish it tomorrow. Do you see any typos? Those are really three different kinds of ways of asking people for feedback or to hire an editor. You know, what, where, where are you in the process of revision? And that determines uh, what kind of editor, what kind of edit you look for. Um, so it's, it's important to be able to, to put that, not just to say, here's my, my piece, fix it, you know, but, but to ask them how you want it fixed. What I love again about your book is it brings you all the way to handing it over to an editor as well. So it makes sure that you've done your part and you're not hoping to, the editor will do all the dirty work for you. And this book is really about what's going on inside the writer's mind. And you also look at the other side of the coin, which is the reader and the reader's mind in your other book, which is a companion book, writing to be understood what works and why. Right. Yeah, that was also fun just to say, okay, I've, I've got the writer's brain down, but you know, here's the, the second half of the equation. It's not done until someone reads and understands it. That's when I'm done as a writer. Right? When someone reads and understands the thing I've written. So uh, thinking about the reader, how does that affect, again, the writing uh, itself. So that was a really uh, fun set of topics to explore similarly with that same sort of cognitive science bent as, as this book, but um, uh, looking at how do we, you know, how do we use story or uh, metaphors and what's happening in the reader's brain when they read a visual analogy or, you know, all of that kind of thing. It was really, that was a lot of fun to explore as well. Um, so I got to talk to a lot of my a lot of writers that I really admire too, which was a fun thing to do. 
And if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? I have a website, which is just my name, com, and with the silent E, please. <laughs> and all my books are there, and I have some blog posts there, and there's a contact form, so you can email me there. Or you can, you know, if you have a question or anything you want to follow up on from this, you can also send me an email at anne at com. Author of The Writer's Process, Getting Your Brain in Gear, Anne Janzer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aiden. It was fun.